Good day to all of our investors and general listeners. This is the Rudd Commentary. My name is Josh Rudd, and I'll be your host on this presentation today. And with me is Jack Kerr, our Capital Markets Associate. For all of our new listeners who may not be familiar with our firm, the Rudd Company is a wealth management firm headquartered in Fort Worth, Texas. We manage investments for clients across the country and specialize in personal investment management, retirement planning, and the setup and management of employer-sponsored retirement plans. Jack, we are finally going to get to our much-anticipated part two of our series on investing in non-financial assets. Yeah, Josh, I'm excited, and we have a great guest today. Well, we do, and, and I'm very excited to hear from our guest as well, and, and really to see if I can figure out how to convince my wife that a sports car is actually an investment. <laughs> well, as you know about me, not a huge car guy, so I definitely plan on learning a lot today. Well, a little more seriously, this is an important topic. In addition to the others we have discussed, you know, we talked about art, antiques, and, and even investment-grade wine, an alternative asset class that many investors may not be aware of. Before we dive in, Jack, why don't you take us into the trading room and bring us up to date on, on what you're currently watching? So I want to do things a little differently today. Um, I do want to touch on the market performance and some economic trends that we've been following, but also want to go into some end of the year things that our clients and listeners should be thinking about with their accounts. So first, I want to talk about performance and be pretty brief here. There's not too much over the last month. After the election, we have seen a steady kind of uptick in the indexes, much less volatile than before the election when things were swinging on a day-to-day basis and we really had to watch out for news headlines and election updates. Of course, the vaccine news helped, which I talked about on last podcast. The market did get a boost from that as well. We'll continue to monitor that. On the economic front, job growth has been stalling a bit. And that's something that we've been watching and a trend that's been happening over the last three months or so. Despite that, the unemployment rate has been decreasing. That's mostly due to the people that are leaving the labor force, which is now down from 63%-ish to 61.5%. Whenever I look at these job statistics month to month, I really like to focus on going into the sectors and seeing which sectors are gaining jobs, which sectors are losing jobs. And this month, some surprises, I'd say. So we got some gains in transportation, which isn't a surprise. We saw people flying over the holidays. Airports were packed. People really starting to feel a little more comfortable traveling. So we have seen some job gains there. The one that surprised me was professional services. Professional services jobs are gaining, and it's a little bit of a surprise, but it's good news, I would say, that businesses are starting to spend a little more money, you know, look into additional services to boost their business, help grow the top line. That's good. In terms of jobs that are falling, we've seen retail jobs fall over the last couple months. And this is a bit surprising as well, I'd say. We have seen the e-commerce boom, which makes sense that brick and mortar retail jobs would decrease. Heading into the holiday season, I expected to see these numbers be a little more stagnant. We'll monitor these jobs as, you know, holiday spending picks up. For those who listen to this podcast a lot, we frequently talk about consumer spending and what that might mean, especially so here in the holiday season. According to a top real estate firm in the U.S., people are actually returning purchases at a record rate. This was from around beginning of December, so we did see the Black Friday kind of spike and people returning actually from that time. What's interesting to me, Josh, is that they track this via manufacturing warehouse leasing. And it seems like more companies are trying to lease more space in the warehouse sector. Curious to me whether this continues through Christmas and the holiday season. You know, I don't know for sure, but it sure makes sense to me when I think about it. Much of us have a 
additional cash in our pocket just due to you know all the stimulus that's gone out. And, and remember too, and I was going to mention this is something else that I think investors just need to be aware of is that the additional money supply and low interest rates have really not only driven a lot of purchases that may or may not have been needed, which may have driven some returns, but also driven a lot of the uh, real asset prices up over the past year when you look at things like automobiles and vacation homes. And I mean, even things, anything that basically requires financing has gone up quite a bit. So no, I think that's a very interesting study. Not not concerning, but I believe it, it points to a lot of extra money in, in individuals' pockets and maybe, uh, Jack, just a lot of restless time at home. Yeah, for sure. Good point about the inflation. No, I think a lot about the uncertainty, especially with the stimulus bill and people's jobs. And, you know, they may have spent a little bit during the holiday season and now, you know, looking to return that based on just uncertainty in their financial lives. The last thing I wanted to bring up here, Josh, and I know you had some comments on is changes in tax policy. Maybe not the mainstream tax policy where we hear about the different brackets and how that might change. More about the hidden taxes. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? So taxes has been on our mind uh, since we're we're now fairly certain that there's going to be a change in the administration and just starting to see some of the main issues, I think, that are going to be a focus for the next four years. You know, I've been watching the media, and I know you have too, that the focus has really been on, you know, what's going to happen to corporate tax rate and the individual brackets. But I just want investors to realize that there's a lot of hidden taxes out there. You know, it could be anything from just purchasing goods like gasoline and alcohol and especially luxury goods. We've talked about those real asset prices going up. I mean, just think about the taxes that you're now going to pay on a new car or what your property taxes are going to be going forward on your primary home. Unless you've got a bunch of cattle on the property and you have an ag exemption here in the state of Texas, I think that unfortunately a lot of homeowners are going to be in for a surprise uh, over the next several years years when they see the tax rates in line with the actual property values these days. So there's a lot of taxes out there that I think investors should really be aware of. And what a, what a great time of the year to really stop and pump the brakes and talk to your CPA and do some tax planning before next year and see if you can implement some changes that may save you a few bucks. Well, Josh, appreciate that transition. That's actually what I wanted to talk about next is just kind of the end of the year tasks for each investor to think about. I think you give some great advice there, especially with continually talking with CPAs and their experts with these things. So the first thing I want to talk about and is a tool that we typically use is harvesting gains and losses in investment accounts. I don't know if a lot of our investors are aware, but we can tactically harvest gains or losses based on the year. Josh, there's probably not a lot of opportunity this year with just how well the stock market has done. Do you want to comment on this and when we can be able to use this tool? I'm glad you mentioned this because it is something that I feel is overlooked. You know, we talk about on each program that we are an active investment manager. So what that means is while we do use mutual funds and ETFs and other pooled investment vehicles to achieve our objectives, we also have a specialty in investing in individual securities, stocks and, and bonds and preferreds and, and other types of individual securities. And really that can give an investor in certain situations a, a real tax advantage. And you had mentioned being able to isolate investments maybe that haven't done as well for the year. And they may be investments that we want to or that we intend to hold for the long term. But sometimes in certain circumstances, we're able to go ahead and recognize gains and losses when it's advantageous for a particular investor. And this is not unique to our firm. But unfortunately, I have found a lot of our competitors just don't take advantage of this. And so we do have the ability to do that. And that's something that I would encourage our listeners who are our clients to talk to us about. Jack had mentioned there's not a lot of opportunity this year to do that. But from year to year, it's something that you should be thinking about and talking to your advisor. When you approach Halloween is when I like to think about it. 
you need to start looking in the in the late fourth quarter for opportunities to do that. But Jack, there's one more thing that I think is important to mention when you talk about harvesting gains and losses. And an investor might hear this and think, well, golly, why would I want to take a loss on an investment? One thing that's important to realize is, is we're not changing the value of the investment portfolio at all when we do that. In many cases, we're also not taking the investor out of the market or out of their investments. We're simply deciding to recognize a capital gain or a capital loss that might add some value to them when they go to file their taxes for that year. Before we do that, Jack, we just need to make sure that that's the best option for that particular client. Thanks for bringing it up, Jack. I think it's a a huge advantage we provide our investors here at the firm. I'm glad you brought up the timeline too. Typically, we do need some time towards the end of the year to kind of figure out which securities you know, we need to do that for. Second thing I want to talk about is just RMDs and then contributions into retirement accounts. As many of you know this year, investors with IRAs are now not required to take an RMD due to the CARE Act that was passed early in the year because of the pandemic. Monitoring this real closely for next year, they haven't said much as far as if investors are going to have to take an RMD in 2021, but that's something we'll continue to monitor for our clients and update them on. And of course, you want to check with your tax advisor before making any decisions on your RMD. As always, if you'd like to max out your retirement account contributions, you can do that as well. Just wanted to remind people that, you know, that is an option as we head to the end of the year. Josh, I know you wanted to touch on charitable contributions real quick. Yes, you know, we've done our program several podcasts ago was on charitable contributions. And I just would like to remind our investors that this is just a very important, not only time of the year, but very important year to come back and and consider those charitable contributions. I know there are a lot of churches and local organizations that have missed attendance this year. I don't know if our listeners are the same as me, but we may not have donated as much this year to support those organizations. There's a lot of great organizations that could use our help. What a better time to think about that when we're all thinking about taxes and doing some tax planning at the end of the year. Again, you definitely want to talk to your tax professional about this to see whether or not those contributions are going to be tax deductible or not. That could affect different investors in different ways. Also, just to bring in a point from our prior program on charitable contributions, you want to make sure that if you're looking to support an organization, that they are, in fact, a legitimate organization if you haven't had a long track record with them. But thanks for giving me the opportunity to bring this up. I just really want to remind our investors that there are a lot of great organizations out there, and not only the tax benefit, but you should consider just the the benefit to our community from making these contributions at the end of the year. Yeah, Josh, good thing we made a whole podcast on charitable giving. If any clients have questions, feel free to go back and look at that. And the next thing I want to talk about is Roth conversions. This is something we use a lot in our business, Josh, as many of our clients have taken advantage of, and it's a powerful tool in investing. Can you explain the benefits of a Roth conversion and when we would typically use this? Well, thank you, Jack. So I'm really glad you brought that up. Roth IRAs specifically are, as you had mentioned, just a really powerful tool in our planning process. And the ability to convert pre-tax assets from a traditional IRA to a Roth IRA can be a very beneficial tool in tax planning for the future. And you have to think about it. You know, Roth IRAs are sometimes some of the smaller accounts our investors have. In a lot of cases, you know, they've been contributing to them earlier in their career and they don't qualify to contribute now. And they're always trying to figure out how to get more money into those Roth IRAs, which can be tax-free based on on current tax laws. How do you do that? And and you hear about investors that have a lot of money in these Roth IRAs and you know try to figure out how they how they did that when they're limited to these small annual contributions. One of the ways is taking some of the money that may be out there sitting in a pre-tax IRA and doing what's called a Roth conversion. 
you need to check with your accountant to see whether or not you're eligible to do that. That could change in any given year. However, if you can, think about the advantage of moving large sums of money in a tax year where maybe you're not paying that much in taxes over to a Roth that could be tax-free on withdrawals for, for quite a long time. And that account may also be one of your smaller accounts. It might also be fair to say that might be one of your more aggressive accounts. So the rate of growth could be a little higher. When you step back as an investor and you think about all those advantages, it really makes a Roth conversion really attractive. And I would encourage investors to think about that before we get to the Christmas season, because many of the custodians have deadlines to process those Roth conversions that are ahead of the end of the year. I would encourage you that if you are thinking about that, to get on the stick and talk to your advisor pretty quick about that. I do think that's a really valuable part of our business. The only other things I'd like to mention are just for our business owners out there. We have a lot of high-performing business owners that have great small and medium-sized businesses. And I would just encourage you to look at any end-of-the-year expenses that you may have, deductible expenses uh, prior to year-end, or just think about any of those capital and and equipment purchases you may have. You can't uh, expense those, but you might be able to talk to your accountant and, and see what type of accelerated depreciation you can recognize there. Those are some things that I think are are good for all business owners to do. If you know you're going to spend the money. Look at at maximizing your tax deductions for the year. One thing that's great about being Americans, it's all of our civic duty to pay the least amount of taxes as possible. So I'm I'm a big supporter of that, Jack. Well, Jack, now we're to the part of the program that I've really been looking forward to, looking at not just the assets that we all think about, art, wine, things like that. Really, you know, we've talked about a lot this whole year, gold and silver, a lot of different alternative assets. But what I'd like to do is move to something I think that's a little more interesting from my perspective. I've loved automobiles and been kind of a gearhead my whole life. In fact, I think I mentioned to you, I came home the other day and and my son had uh, used my reciprocating saw to remove his exhaust system off of his Camaro, and it was laying <laughs> on our floor. That's just kind of the family we are, and we enjoy working on cars. And And so I wanted to look at automobiles from an asset class perspective and from the perspective of those out there that might consider that an investment. And we have a really great guest that has agreed to be on our program today, Bob Lauterbach, who has really built an an impressive business in wholesale automobiles over the last 37 years. And what surprised me when I really started to build my business here is visiting some of the dealerships trying to win their business in the 401k market. And I actually ran into Bob at one of them when he was working one day, and and I realized how well-known Bob is in, in the area. So, Bob, thank you very much for being on our program today. Oh, you're welcome, Josh. Thanks for having me. The first question that I think has been on my mind as I talk to some of our investors about automobiles, and you and I have discussed this before, the price of automobiles in general has increased dramatically over the last decade or two, and really to heights that I find just amazing. You know, we see these price tags over $100,000 on these new cars these days. And I I wondered if you could just shed a little light on on what you think has been driving, not just classic cars, but automobile prices in general. Well, I think automobile prices, the newer ones are, are being driven basically by the new stuff that they have to put on them, the internet capability and automobiles and everything else that goes on. And also, you know, the reliability of new cars has gotten better and that comes with the cost. It comes with the engineering and everything. Fuel injection gets perfected and, and you know, cars now run 200,000 miles versus 50 to 80,000 miles they did in the 60s and 70s, if you'll take care of them. And I think that is probably what's running the cost of the new ones, plus the government regulations of safety and everything else. Now, because of that, 
it brings the price of the used ones up because if you look at a used car that's 50 years old nowadays, that's been restored, the, the, the restoration is so much better than it was 20 or 30 years ago. And that costs money. So if you get a highly restored, perfect car, it's actually nicer than it was new in 1965 or whenever you bought the car. So everything that gets nicer costs money. And that's what's raising the price of, of antique cars is if you can either buy one fixed up or you can fix it up yourself. And it's better to buy one fixed up because if you fix one up yourself, you'll probably end up having seventy five or 80000 in it and it's worth 40000 Whereas if you buy it fixed up, even if you gave 50000 it may still be worth 40000 but that's better than having 80000 in it. That's just my opinion. Oh, that makes a lot and, of sense. And it's because the cost of repairs is so expensive nowadays. Not only the parts are extremely high, but the labor to do it is high and the quality of work is better. So they actually spend more time at it than they used to restoring cars 20, 30 years ago. Do you find that some of a lot of these older cars that are being restored or being used as, or can be used as daily drivers? I mean, is that, is it that good? Uh, well, it's good enough to be used for daily driver, but they're so expensive. Very few people do that. You don't want to park your car in a parking lot and have someone ding it if you just spent $25,000 on a paint job. Sure. Literally, a nice paint job costs twenty to 25000 nowadays just for the paint in a, in a high-dollar high restoration. One question I had, and admittedly, I probably know a little bit less than Josh, so I was excited about this podcast. I wanted to get your opinion on how, how you feel about classic autos as an investment specifically. I know a lot of people may really like cars, go out and buy cars, but not necessarily looking at that as an investment opportunity, more as just something that they enjoy to drive. I wanted to get your opinion on how do you feel about those as an investment particularly. Well, as far as investment, as far as it increasing in value, that's a, that's a dicey thing because you have to figure out what people are going to want. It's not what you want to drive. It's what whoever you're going to sell it to wants to drive that's willing to give extra money for it. If you pick out a car that you like, that doesn't mean the next guy's going to like it specifically. That's, that's the tricky part about it. I look at the car collecting, and I'm a collector. I look at it as a hobby that I enjoy. And if you have some excess money, you can put it in a car. You can actually go look at it, rub on it, drive it, whatever you want to do, versus just calling Josh and saying, how much money's in there now? You know, <laughs> So it's enjoyable, but it comes at a cost. If you're going to be a car collector, you need to have a little bit of mechanical ability to do some of the minor things. You don't have to do all the major things. You don't have to be a, a painter or a heavy machinist for the engine or anything, but you need to do some of the mechanical work, or it gets very expensive to own one. You have to have a place to store it. Very few people have four or five car garages, so if they put their wife's car in and their car in, well, how many more stalls do you have? If you don't have a garage, you have to go rent a place. Pretty soon you're looking at three, four, five hundred $500 a month or $600 a month to rent a place. So there are costs with it, and those costs are basically unrecoupable. That's why I call it a hobby. It's something you do to enjoy versus something you do to make money on. You also have to drive the cars somewhat frequently because cars are mechanical, and if you don't drive them, they will turn bad on you. And lots of things will go wrong. So I try to drive all my cars at least once a week. Bob, other than driving your cars once a week, is there anything else our listeners can do if, if they have invested a significant amount of money into a into a classic automobile? Are there other things that they can do to help make sure that that, that vehicle is holding the value and and that it's its ability or it's, I'm not going to say liquid like we work with with investments, but your chance of getting the best price in resale is maximized. Or do you have any pointers? Well, you have it stored in a, in a dry place that doesn't get water in or anything else. You also need to put mice traps out because mice will get in there and chew the wires up and just destroy a car. So it depends. If it's your house, you probably don't have a problem with mice. But if it's out in a shop somewhere in a, in a I keep mine in the hangar with my airplanes. 
I keep traps out all the time because I don't want them getting up in there and, and doing a lot of damage. You have to keep the paint clean, keep it wiped off just because you don't want it to corrode and all those kind of things. But basically, you need to keep it in a very nice environment. It doesn't necessarily have to be heat controlled and temperature controlled. It's nice if it is, but you do need to have it out of the sun and everything to protect it in those kind of ways. So let's say you've followed your advice and you've, you know, you've kept it in a nice place. You've kept the critters out of it and you're driving it once a week and, and you're somewhat mechanically inclined. And you just want to know after a few years what your you know, 67 Camaro is worth. What's the current market value? In our business, we can type in XYZ company on the internet and get a price on it. Jack can go out and he can fish around for bonds and other investments that maybe most individuals can't, but there's some type of price discovery. How in the heck do you find out what a car is worth in, for a classic automobile that's over 50 years old? Well, the first place to start is on the internet. You can go in there and just put a car in, 67 Camaro for sale, and you'll get about 50 of them pop up. You can go down there and kind of judge what your car's like versus what they're asking. Now, just because they're asking that doesn't mean they're going to get that, but if you look at 50 cars, you're going to get an idea of somewhat of the range where it's what it's worth. Now, the biggest mistake most people make with their cars is they have a tendency to overclassify the car that they have. In other words, make it in their mind that's nicer than it actually is. Now, I'm not saying that's true with everybody, but if you're looking at a picture on the Internet, the picture will look really good because that's the one they're <laughs> going to print. Sure. The car, when you actually see it, doesn't usually look as good as the picture. Now, the car that you may have in your garage could be better than that car or worse than that car. But the, the biggest thing people do is they overclassify how nice a car they're buying or have a nice a car that they have. And, and that's something to be careful about there. But as far as figuring out what something's worth, you know, that's where I would start would be the Internet. I would also also watch some of the, the auctions like Meekum Auction and Barrett Jackson Auction. They have four or five per year each company and they have it on TV. And if you watch those, you'll get a pretty good idea of uh, what something might bring at an auction. Now, you got to realize that most cars at auctions, you know, you'll have four or 500 buyers there, and so it's going to bring top dollar. You know, if there's buyers in the room, they'll, it'll bring all the money. So it may bring more than you can actually get, but they do charge you a lot for selling them there. Yeah, so you talk about, you know, I'm sure with the growth of the internet, that's really helped with price discovery. It's the same in our business, as Josh said. Say I get a sum of money together, I know what I want to spend. What are the best places to go. If I don't have any experience, I don't really know where I want to buy a car. Should I start with the internet or should I really try to go to some shows? Well, you need to, you need to go to all of them. You can go to local shows, car shows, and just see what you want to buy. Once you narrow it down to four or five cars you'd like to buy, then I would, I would suggest watching some of those auctions on TV. It it takes a little bit of time, but if if you will tape them, you can go through all the, all the commercials and everything and and weed out and just watch the actual car sales. And you you can watch a five hour auction in about an hour and 10 minutes. That's what I do. I still watch almost every auction that's on TV and I'm not really looking to buy a car, but you know, I will see cars that are like mine. So I'll get an idea. Well, that's pretty much what mine's worth or it's not worth. All those are good ideas, but if you got an idea of what you want to buy already, I would say just don't make a rash decision real quick. Give yourself a month or two to kind of check out and see what value is out there. Makes sense. And what about from a pricing perspective? Are there any fees that I should be looking out for when I go to buy a car? I I guess basically what I'm asking is how do some of the sellers in the business really make their money? Well, the established sellers that have been selling classic cars, they'll, they'll have an inventory of their own. Some of them have own the inventory. Some of them have it on consignment from the sellers. Most of them will have it on consignment. Some of the larger ones will actually own them. 
So they usually have repeat clientele and they'll have lists of people wanting certain cars. So when they buy a car, they, a lot of times they'll have an idea who they could sell it to. Now there's lots of people out there that do consignment only. And they basically just consign your car. They run it on their website on the internet. They price it. They take the calls for it. They talk to the people about it. And then they put you and him together. And sometimes the commission is anywhere from 5 to 15% of the selling price. Now, at the auctions, at the car auctions, if you sell a car there, it costs you 8%. And if you buy a car there, it costs you 10%. So that's 18% on the total price. If you've got a $100,000 car, that's $18,000 <laughs> yeah, commission for the, for the auctioneer. That's quite a bit of money. But all the buyers that want the nice cars are going to be there at the auction. So they do bring extra money. I'm not saying it's the best place, but you know you have to figure at least if you bought a car at the auction and then sold it at the auction, it's going to cost you 18%. If you go to sell an automobile... Are there any important things to consider to try to maximize the price of your vehicle either that day or are there any things you can do leading up to the sale to try to really differentiate your vehicle or try to maximize the price? Well, there's two different car collectors. One are the ones that just want a a medium-type price car. You can buy a collectible car for $10,000 or less, actually. And and those cars aren't very particular on, on what you can do other than just have them all really cleaned up extra nice, make them look as nice as they will. But you get into the, some of the muscle cars that are very, very rare. You have to have documentation. You have to have written down whatever history you have on the car. You have to have proof. Say a numbers matching motor could raise the value of a, of a car 20% or 30% if it is the actual matching number motor that came on the vehicle when it was new. Because those are pretty rare in muscle car cars because we blew them up back in the day. You know, we raced them and, and they didn't last. So that's why it, if you can prove that the engine's what came in the car, it, it makes the car more expensive. So obviously you'd want that documented and as much as the complete history of the car. Also, you, you, you have accessories like the rear end and the rear end gear. They all have numbers on it that can prove if they came with the car or not. And, you know, that's important and raises the price of the value of the vehicle. Well, we've heard a lot about that. Uh, from the other alternative asset classes we talked about. For example, I know in the art market, we heard about tracing the history and where that came from is extremely important and can impact the value of that. It sounds like that if you're wanting your investment in an automobile to hold value, it might be worth, would you agree that it might be worth to put a few extra dollars into getting numbers matching and making sure that that vehicle was original? I mean, little things you and I have talked about in the past, you know, the the original trim, the original paint, the original leather, are those things that those collectors are really looking for, kind of like the Mike Trout baseball card that we've talked about before, you know, that was in perfect condition that recently sold for, I think, upwards of $4 million. Is that really important with a vehicle? Yeah, it's important as long, it depends what, what level you are in investment. When you, when you get a car that's extremely rare and everything's matching and everything's like it's supposed to be on it, a lot of people are afraid to drive that car. So if you're wanting to buy a car to drive and enjoy, that may not be the car for you to buy. Because if you buy a really pretty Corvette, Camaro, Mustang that's gorgeous, is not numbers matching, and it just runs and drives wonderful, well, you don't have any qualms about jumping in it and getting out on the freeway and going. Now, I'm a little different. Most of my cars are numbers matching, and they're built back in the 60s but I don't care. I drive them anyway. You know, if they blow up, they blow up, but I just try to take good care of them. But it's, it's kind of hard to say which one you should buy because you can buy one that's not numbers matching and looks just as nice as the one that is maybe for 35,000 versus 70,000 for the one that's all right. And be honest with you, there's more buyers for the $35,000 car that's not numbers matching than there is the 70 or 80 or $90,000 car that is because not that many people can afford them. 
it's easier to sell the cheaper ones sometimes than it is the more expensive one because there's there's fewer buyers. Well, Bob, I can't I can't resist asking you this question. You've been in the business a long time, and you've got some really nice cars in the hangar. I've had the the opportunity to to see those. I'm not going to ask you to forecast, but what are your thoughts about just future demand? of the population, just the basic demographics and aging of the population. What type of vehicles do you think are going to be in demand for the next 10, 20, 30 years? And, and what, more importantly, what's going to hold their values in, in the classic car arena? Historically, in the classic car business, two-door cars have held their value well. It's like you take a two-door 57 Chevrolet, gold standard of investment. It brings a lot of money. You take a four-door 57 Chevrolet, same sheet metal, everything except it's got four doors, brings 15 to 20% of what a two-door will. So, you know, you need to find something that's somewhat sporty and what people really like. Now, over the next few years, what you're going to see is my generation, who was born in the 40s and 50s, you know, they're going to get old and pass away. And the 60 model muscle cars, which was the staple of what we loved, I feel like those cars are going to not necessarily depreciate. I don't see them appreciating a whole lot because the people like me that actually grew up with them will be gone. Now, the younger generation still loves those cars because their their dads owned them. But the younger generation, they can't even drive stick shifts. So so you have a problem where the, the four-speed cars of the 60s, that has always been the gold standard, what everybody wanted. Now, there's still some demand for those cars, but what I see coming now is they're putting new motors in them with a fuel injection and the automatic transmissions, and they look old and drive new. And so that's what the younger generation that has some money is is doing. Now, you'll see a lot of those cars bring hundred to $200,000 because it costs so much to fix them up and drive like a new car. I think that's one thing that's going to drive the market is you're going to want the old cars that drive new. And the other thing is the kids now who are 35 to 45 years old who have good jobs and have a little bit of money to invest, they're going to be interested in the cars that were neat when they were in high school, say a 77 Firebird, maybe an 85 Grand National Buick, something like that, that hasn't been necessarily very expensive in the past. They're going to go up. Now, the Firebird started going up about four or five years ago. They probably doubled in the last five years because of this exact reason. People have said, well, that, that's the car I remember Joe having, or I wish I had one of those when I was in high school. I can get one now, so they go get it. And so it's a supply and demand thing, just like anything else in the world. It's hard to say what the demand will be in the future because as generations age, I find that my children are not nearly as interested in cars as I was. They're just a way of transportation rather than when we were growing up, they were the essence of life. I mean, they were the way to get out of the house because, wow, I had wheels so I could leave home. You know, kids don't want to leave home now. So they, <laughs> a bicycle does them just fine. But anyway, <laughs> that's just my thoughts on it. So if I had a crystal ball and could tell you, gee, let's go buy this car because it's going to be worth what it is today from now on or be worth more. All the cars kind of look alike nowadays. It's really hard to tell them apart. They don't have the soul that the 60s, 70s, and somewhat 80 model cars had. You could just look at them from a distance and see. That's a 69 Camaro right there. You know, you can see it. You didn't have to go look at the VIN or look at the sticker on the back on the sticker to see what year model it was. You could tell. 
cars now are not quite as individualistic as they used to be. They only change the body styles every five to eight years on them. So, Jack, it's up to you, your generation. Y'all are going to set the pace for those consumers and what Detroit's putting out. I guess if Detroit's even still making cars. <laughs> well, that's interesting because everybody wants to think that electric are great. Electric are powerful and all that stuff, but an electric car has no soul. It doesn't rumble. It doesn't roar. It doesn't make noises. It just goes quietly. Is that a collectible unit or is that like collecting an appliance? I don't I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> well, Bob, I, I really appreciate all that. And, and I know our listeners have really enjoyed it. I know Jack and I have. Do you have any final just words of wisdom or pointers for our listeners if they've, as you said, they've earned some good money, they want to put some money into a classic automobile, but they're interested in and at least at holding its value. Do you have any advice, either positive or negative, to help them find a, the right car or to help, like me, keep them out of trouble? Yeah, I think the uh, classic car hobby is exactly what it is. It's a hobby. It is a good investment. When I say it's a good investment as far as losing a lot of money, it's probably not going to do that. But it's real easy to lose 10 or 20% of your portfolio in the car business. Very, very easy. So the thing is, while you lose the 10 or 20%, you have the joy of owning that car or the frustration of it. So either way, you're going to be okay because if you hate the car, when you sell it, you'll be so happy. You won't know what to do with yourself and the 10 to 20% will be seen great. And, and if you really love it, you wouldn't sell it for anything because that way, you know, you're a real car collector. You know, they're just really not for sale, which the cars I've got now really aren't for sale. I enjoy them and I've got them just like I like them. And uh, I, I just enjoy having them. Well, Bob, I, I think I speak for all of us here. We really appreciate your insight into the auto market. I really can tell you've spent a lot of time doing it and that you really enjoy it and have a passion for it. And I hope our listeners have enjoyed it as well. Jack, what a great topic today. Discussing the financial markets is, is definitely interesting, but it's nice to explore some of the more unique investments out there, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. This one was definitely more fun than, than we're, we're normally used to. As always, if you enjoyed this program or know other investors that would enjoy topics like this, please share the Rudd Commentary podcast through email or on social media. We also love feedback on our program and ideas for future topics. If you have the time, we'd love to hear from you. All of us here at the Rudd Company would like to thank you, our investors and clients, for your trust. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of your long-term financial journey. We take this role very seriously. Thank you very much for listening today. This is the Rudd Commentary. I'm your host, Josh Rudd. And from all of us here at the Rudd Commentary, a very Merry Christmas and wonderful holiday season to you and your family. We wish you joy, peace, and good health. Invest long and prosper. This commentary is distributed for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Nothing herein constitutes any offer to sell or solicitation of any offer to buy any security. All investment strategies and investments involve risk of loss, including the possible loss of principal invested, and nothing herein should be construed as a guarantee of any specific outcome or profit. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Any opinions expressed by employees of the Rudd Company are the Rudd Company's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of any affiliates. The opinions expressed by guest speakers are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Rudd Company or any affiliates. Guest appearances on this program does not imply the Rudd Company's endorsement of any entity, person, product, service, or investment. All opinions are current and only as of the date of recording and are subject to change without notice.